Welcome to Psychedelicast. Hosted by Clinton Cayley, this show is an interview-based podcast focused on offering listeners in-depth information concerning plant medicines, entheogens, and all subjects tangential to psychedelia. Join us in prying open the third eye. Greetings, fellow denizens of the Chromatic Ribbon. Welcome to Psychedelicast. I am your host, Clinton Cayley. Thank you so much for joining us for another interview episode. Today we are interviewing uh, my brother, Chi Amsterdam. Uh, I believe he's in Costa Rica right now, but he is out of Amsterdam running a, a retreat service known as Truffles Therapy, wherein they utilize psilocybin mushrooms and truffles for entheogenic healing, integration, and uh, consciousness expansion. We're going to talk to Chi in just a moment. Before that, let's do our little housekeeping. Let's do a little psychedelic news here. Um, right up front, we want to say happy birthday to the great and powerful Paul Stamets. Uh, his birthday, technically yesterday, I'm recording this on Saturday morning. Uh, Friday was Paul Stamets' birthday. Thank you so much for everything you've done in the culture and in mycology, Mr. Paul Stamets. We appreciate it. Let's get into our little bit of cleanup, and then we'll do our interview with Chi. Thank you guys for joining us once again. So guys, we're actually going to do a little promo for friends and former guests of the show, the Mystical Heart Collective, my good friends uh, Sinclair Fleetwood and John Steiner. This is their project. Um, they asked me to actually, they, they didn't ask me to promote it, really. They asked me to come and be involved in the uh, program that they are offering. Um, it's called Be Good to Yourself Boot Camp. They actually offered me free admittal, admittance, whatever that word is, to this program. Um, it is going to be an online uh, offering, two weekends, August 1 and 2 and August 8 and 9. Um, they are offering to you a program inspired by the intrinsic natural power of the elements and the ancient wisdom of the shamanic medicine wheel. Be Good to Yourself Bootcamp is a powerful, meaningful, heart-centered approach to holistic growth. We believe the key to having the life you want starts with developing a loving, nurturing, joyful relationship with yourself. Amen. The first step to solving any problem is admitting you have one. We all want to bring the rest of ourselves to this life and frankly... Pardon me, we all want to bring the best of ourselves to this life, and frankly, it's been really hard to know how to do that this year. This event will get you back on track to feeling joyful in only four days. Join our Mystical Heart Collective family and meet spiritually minded, supportive people on the same journey as you. We create a safe, welcoming, non judgmental space for you to truly be yourself. We grow by choosing to go deep, get open, and be willing to look at the ways that we are stuck and have the courage to change things that aren't working. The only way out is through, and this event is a crash course in identifying your pain points, being honest with yourself, and committing to taking action to create the life you want. And you also get to hang out with us, have fun, and learn how to love yourself. So, um, I'm not sure what the total cost of that program is. I want to say it's $44 up front. However, for Psychedelic Cast listeners... We've been offered a promo code for $11 off the total cost of the bootcamp. The promo code is MHCFAMILY, M-H-C-F-A-M-I-L-Y, all one word. If you input that um, 
code into your purchasing option via Facebook, you'll receive $11 off the total cost. We would highly recommend that you take this opportunity for spiritual growth and development with some awesome people and former guests of the show, The Mystical Heart Collective. Thank you guys at The Mystical Heart Collective. We appreciate that. And once again, guys, we love it when you engage with us on social media. Um, follow us at Psychedelicast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We post a lot of cool stuff there. We engage with our followers. We try to stay up to date with the culture and the uh, psychedelic society at large. So thank you guys for being involved on all social media platforms. We ask that you follow us to stay engaged with everything we're doing here at the show. If you wouldn't mind, whatever podcatcher you're listening to the show on right now, go down to the bottom or to the top, wherever the subscribe button is, hit that subscribe button. It would be fantastic if if you would leave us some stars, review the show, tell us what you like, tell us what you don't like, that helps us to grow the audience, reach a wider audience, and to develop the show more uh, deeply. So we appreciate you guys for engaging in all manners. Let's do our psychedelic news story. Kind of a touching one today. Not so much... Um, not so much like a scientific dig like we normally kind of do, but this one comes more from the heart. I found this article earlier this evening. I really enjoyed it. It's kind of long, but I think it's important, and I think you guys will enjoy it. Let's get into that. Today in Psychedelic News, we offer you an article from the Jewish News of Northern California. The article is entitled, Psychedelic Journeys Brought Peace to This Holocaust Survivor, Now He's Helping Others on Their Own Journeys. This was published on July 16th of 2020 by one Alex Wall. Very interesting read here. I hope you guys enjoy this as much as I did, and I hope you find it as poignant and heartwarming as I did. After his father disappeared to, forced, to a forced labor camp in 1942, when George Sarlo was just four years old, it left a traumatic wound that would not heal for the next 70 years. Then, when he was in his 70s, Sarlo had a life-changing experience. After ingesting a psychedelic native plant in a Mexican fishing village, Sarlo says he had an encounter with his dead father, who finally provided an answer to the question that had plagued his son for so many years, why he'd left without saying goodbye. That experience eight years ago has today made Sarlo a successful San Francisco venture capitalist and philanthropist, an unlikely advocate for the use of psychedelic drugs to treat trauma, addiction, and the fear and anxiety that can accompany a diagnosis of terminal illness. Sarlo, now 82, shared his story last November at Congregation Emmanuel L., explaining how his father leaving him without saying goodbye had haunted him for 70 years, nearly his entire life. Many of those listening were brought to tears. Born in 1938 in Budapest, Sarlo was one of two children. His sister was seven years older. When the Hungarian government began passing anti-Jewish laws, Sarlo's father lost his job as a clerk in a textile mill. Friends allowed him to buy remnants of fabric from the mill, and he and Sarlo's mother, a talented seamstress, began sewing women's lingerie that his father would sell to dealers. They earned a decent living until his father had to report for deportation to a labor camp. He left early one morning and never returned. For the next three years, the family moved around, living in fear and dread that the Nazis could deport them. 
something that happened to their entire extended family, none of whom survived. To make sure the same did not happen to her small family, Sarlo's sister risked her life, sneaking out of the house to the Spanish consulate, where she obtained life-saving documents. Issued Spanish passports and papers, they spent the last three months of the war in a Budapest apartment with some two dozen others under the official protection of the Spanish government. Sarlo calls his sister, quote, the hero of the family. When the war ended, Sarlo remembers a box arriving with warm clothing, Hershey's chocolate, and chewing gum. It came from the Joint Distribution Committee. My mother could not believe that somebody who didn't even know us sent us all this, said Sarlo. The idea of philanthropy was never explained to us. Being the beneficiary of such philanthropy at a pivotal point in his life would have great influence years later, when he was in the position to give back himself. After liberation, Sarlo's family stayed in Hungary and Sarlo entered the Technical University of Budapest in 1956, the year of the short-lived Hungarian revolution against Soviet control. Sarlo took part in this conflict, putting himself and his family in danger. His mother advised him to flee the country with his sister, his sister's husband, and their two-year-old son. She had remarried another survivor, and they would stay in Hungary. It's the bravest thing I've ever heard. She said, go, he said. Sarlo carried his two-year-old nephew during much of the escape. His backpack and a scarf from his mother that he wore while sneaking through a minefield and around electrically charged fences are now in an exhibit on refugees at the Smithsonian Museum. They made it to Vienna, where they hired someone to smuggle Sarlo's mother and husband out of Hungary, and eventually the whole family made it to America, where they were received by the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. Sarlo was 18, and the very next day he was working as a draftman at an engineering firm. Sarlo's trajectory is a real immigrant success story. He attended the University of Arizona on a full scholarship, then went to Harvard Business School. He made his first million dollars within three years working on Wall Street. He was a founder of the first venture capital firm investing in Silicon Valley, and in 1973 founded his own firm, Walden Venture Capital. It was good timing. My whole life was good timing, he said. His first foray into philanthropy was with the International Refugee Committee, as Sarlo identified strongly with the plight of refugees, having been one himself. He also remembered the JDC box his family received in Hungary, and he eventually joined its board as well. For many years, Sarlo remained distant from his Judaism, but the connections began to build. In the early 1990s, he accepted an invitation from local philanthropist Warren Hellman to join a Torah study group. In 1992, he founded the George Sarlo Foundation and asked Phyllis Cook, then endowment director of the Jewish Community Endowment Fund at the SF-based Jewish Community Federation, to sit on his board. In time, she asked him to start a fund with the Federation. The George Sarlo Foundation primarily funds mental health initiatives with a major focus on addiction and early childhood trauma. Another focus on psychedelics brought Sarlo some notoriety after he was featured in an article in the New York Times last fall talking about funding research of psilocybin and MDMA. Given his own experiences, he has come to believe that even one guided experiences, experience with psychedelics as an adult can heal trauma or PTSD. It was that 2012 trip to Mexico that convinced him of the healing power of psychedelics. At the recommendation of a fellow Hungarian Holocaust survivor and therapist friend, Sarlo went there specifically to take ayahuasca, a plant medicine commonly used for rituals and healing by indigenous people in Peru and other South American countries. It was not a decision he made easily. 
You want me to go where and do what? was his first response. But his friend, who had been using psychedelic therapy to treat addiction and trauma, made a persuasive argument. In the second of two journeys with the substance, which is taken in a sacred ceremony led by a shaman, Sarlo, Sarlo says he had a conversation with his long-dead father, who told him the reason he didn't say goodbye was because he thought he was clever enough to get out of any situation, and that he'd return home by the time his son woke up. It's a simple explanation and it fit, said Sarlo. Slowly, the low-grade depression I had experienced for most of my life lifted and never came back. And I decided I wanted to give this incredible gift to as many people as I can manage. Sarlo credits psychedelics with more than curing his depression. They also played a role in bringing him back to his Judaism. During another psychedelic exploration, this time on psilocybin mushrooms, he had what he describes as a confrontation with God. In this particular vision, he saw God as male, though he'd seen her as female too. God asked Sarlo why he had turned away, and Sarlo pointed to the Holocaust and the loss of his extended family. The greatest gift I have to give humanity is free will, he says God told him. But then along comes Hitler. What was I supposed to do? Drown him? What about the runaway car about to hit a child? Am I supposed to save them all? You can't have it both ways. Now that's an explanation I had heard before, but it didn't register, Sarlo said. This time, it registered. Sarlo married and divorced twice and had two daughters. Neither his neither wife was Jewish. He believes he subconsciously chose to marry non-Jewish women so his children wouldn't be Jewish and therefore would be safe. Though, of course, in the Holocaust, that wouldn't have mattered. In the end, both of his daughters married Jewish men. Two of his grandchildren had b'na mitzvahs, and the third had a Jewish rite of passage ceremony. It's hilarious because it shows God has a sense of humor, is how Sarlo explains it. George Sarlo had experienced this big healing with himself, a tikkun, said Rabbi Cindy Mintz, who moderated the conversation last fall at Emmanuel. He could have just done this and thought, it's my own thing and I'm healed, and that would have been acceptable, but he wants to share this with people, which transformed him into a teacher. Sarlo has been working on a book to be published this summer with MAPS, the Santa Cruz-based multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. But the pandemic and the presidency of Donald Trump has made him feel a level of fear he had hoped never to feel again, he said. Now he's revising the original manuscript. There are some difficult times coming, he said, and I'm not even sure that the species can survive without some change. But he seems to have found peace within himself. I think that because of my experiences, both in Judaism and with psychedelics, I'm a much better father, he said. I'm a much better grandfather and a better friend, and I'm better to myself. And that's the end of the article there. Like I said, I realized that was a long one, but I really enjoyed reading it myself. I hope you guys gained something uh, important, useful, and poignant from that reading. Let's get into our interview with Chi Amsterdam of Truffles Therapy discussing psilocybin healing. Psychedelic movement here in Texas is pretty non-existent unless you really, really look for it. Uh, I've been lucky enough to find it locally in a couple different places. 
uh, people who kind of do what you do, who kind of uh, facilitate and uh, create a safe space for people to experience these medicines. Um, but if you're not, it's it's very, you know, Texas is a very red conservative state. Mm-hmm. Our marijuana laws are still barbaric. Um, anything dealing with your own exploration of consciousness is pretty outlawed. Right. Yeah. They want you to stay uh, within the system to think like they want you to think, right? (laughs) To go to work and get sick and sacrifice for the economy. (laughs) Exactly. I think that's exactly what they want. Um, So, yeah, Texas is pretty Bible Belt, uh, hardcore right, and they don't um and there's no sign of any kind of um movement in the right direction in my opinion we i think it'll start in austin if it does come when and if it comes to texas and i'm assuming it will start with legalization of medical marijuana i wouldn't i really don't have any hope for like legalization of recreational marijuana um but as far as any talk of decriminalization of psychedelics or anything like that, non-existent. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, yeah, I, have, I have a friend in Austin, actually. He's, he's uh, <clears throat> you know, he's growing mushrooms. And um, Austin is definitely different, for sure. There's a lot more openness. But even there, you know, people are a little... I think just anywhere in the U.S., people don't feel as free as uh, we're sold to we're sold that the country is actually free, but actually we're pretty much a lockdown in our, you know, in our politic, they want us to think that we're politically free, but actually the, the way they want us to be free is within this tiny little range, but anything outside that range is radical and it's, you know, disturbing to the social order or whatever. <laughs> yep. You're very, very right. They like to portray it, portray and, uh, sermonize the the laurels and merits of freedom but that freedom is defined by the powers that be and not by the people and certainly not by those who are trying to expand explore consciousness and things of that nature we have very little voice for the most part uh it's getting louder you know i'm 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 like hopeful and uh optimistic about it but you know here in Te- i don't think i'm i'm not particularly optimistic about texas so We'll probably have to go somewhere else like Colorado or California, somewhere a little more forward thinking. Uh, but anyways, we jumped right on into it, man. Why don't you uh, welcome the Psychedelicast, first of all. I'm Clint. It's a pleasure to meet you digitally. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and why we, would, why we might be speaking to you today? Cool. Yeah, so my name is Chi and... I was born and raised in New York, um, moved to Arizona when I was about 13, went to high school and college in uh, Scottsdale slash Phoenix, Tempe, Arizona. And yeah, since I graduated, I've been pretty nomadic for about 10 years. Um, I was most recently in Amsterdam where um, we started a little organization called Truffles Therapy that organized and facilitated um, magic truffle retreats. And 
Yeah, we've seen um, more than 230 people in person, and we've coached another few hundred. We don't. We try not to keep track of numbers anymore because that's not what it's about. But we've seen hundreds of people go through the journey uh, with psychedelics, many of them for the first time. And yeah, my life is dedicated to making sure that people have the safest, most healing journeys and the best uh, medicine and education and resources and guides, you know, necessary for their exploration. Sure, sure. So um, you said you were in Amsterdam. Where are you at right now? I'm in Costa Rica. We're by the highest mountain in Costa Rica. It's called Chiripo, and it's called the land of eternal waters. And there's rivers and streams flowing everywhere. And we re we live right next to a, a river that flows really, really cold. And we get in there as often as possible to refresh ourselves. Sure, sure. I've heard there's a lot of good value to that kind of cold shock therapy. Uh, I try to take a cold shower every now and then, but kind of uncomfortable <laughs> but you know that leads to uh, mm -hmm. you know a lot of these things that are necessary for our growth and development are quite often uncomfortable i.e sometimes the psychedelic experience um so are you living in costa rica or are you just spending some time there we've been here for almost three months now we were watching what was happening in europe with the lockdowns and we knew i mean i knew my partner and i knew that we didn't want to be locked down in the U.S. Uh, so, yeah, we came to Costa Rica and it's been on my list of countries to visit for many, many years. And finally, I made the plunge. And, yeah, it's been really beautiful here. We've been staying at a retreat center called Finca Mia. And we're just on many, many acres of pure nature, a lot of different types of trees. Like right now, I'm looking at maybe like, 20 different species of trees and there's so many colorful birds around so you know the more i take mushrooms the more i want to be in uh nature and the more i want to really commune with that which is greater than just you know myself or even human beings sure sure they have that effect on me as well um so what is it that speaks to you about the mushroom, I assume, well, I'm gonna, this would be a large assumption, but I would assume you've utilized other uh, plant medicines or psychedelic compounds, but what is it specifically about psilocybin that speaks to you? Hmm. I think it's the naturalness and the, how connected it feels and how it helps me really look into my own emotions in a very soft way. Um, I also like just how democratic it is, how many people can grow it, access it if they really want. Whereas, you know, I love ayahuasca too, but it's a little harder to make on your own. And, um, and also mushrooms are, they grow everywhere, you know, mostly. And, it seems like if there's going to be a psychedelic that's going to be able to move into the mainstream with as little 
governmental resistance as possible, I think it's mushrooms because there's so many studies being done and it's less foreign than someone thing like ayahuasca, you know, mushroom. How can you be against the mushroom for, for that long? Um, and now looking back at the journey, I don't really think I chose the mushroom. I think it just, I just kept taking it and naturally I saw the benefits and I started speaking about it and people started coming to me for the mushroom. So it seems sort of karmic in a way and um it seemed like i was just called or you know chosen by the mushroom in a certain way that i might not have had as much control as i thought i did in the process ah yes the mushroom loves to teach me that as does ayahuasca <laughs> they love to teach me about my lack of control and my perceived uh concept that i am in control and then they like to completely destroy that idea and make me watch. And uh, that's always good for me, although it's sometimes uh, quite uncomfortable at, in the moment. But it always ends up meaning a lot to me. Um, right. So what was your early introduction to the mushroom like? Like, I remember the first time I took mushrooms. I talked about it not too long ago on the show. And it was actually my very first psychedelic experience other than, uh, well, at this time in, in American history, 10, 12, 14 years ago, uh, Salvia Divinorum. Are you familiar with Salvia Divinorum? Mm, that, I've never tried it, but I've been around several people who have and told me their stories about it. Yeah. Well, my very, very first psychedelic experience was with an extremely high dose of Salvia Divinorum smoked and I was completely naive to the psychedelic experience, completely naive to the extreme power that Salvia Divinorum wields. And uh, it was a harrowing, unforgettable experience, but it was completely uh, unprecedented for me. But I would say my first actual, like, well thought out, prepared for psychedelic experience was with psilocybin mushrooms. And a buddy of mine gave them to me and I took them in his apartment and, you know, I had the kind of classic low-dose psilocybin experience where the walls are melting. I'm feeling this connected to this um, sensation of like ancient wisdom, like this kind of nostalgia for something that I can't quite remember and all these, these different uh, feelings that you one may experience for on a low-dose psilocybin uh, experience. So can you recall back to your early experiences or what was the experience that kind of showed you, oh, wow, this is more than what I what I may have thought it was? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I remember very clear, actually, my first ever psychedelic experience was, I think, January 2017, where I had um, uh, five tabs of acid and that was a mind-blowing experience i too was uh unaware of anything psychedelic i didn't really do any research i just thought that people saw colors and i took uh, one tab i didn't feel anything i took two more i'm like whoa i started feeling i'm like whoa i want more of this and i then i took two more and within an hour hour 15 minutes i was on the floor just you know i could not move i was i was like a handicapped child yeah, and, um, that first acid journey really blew my mind open. And a couple weeks later, a friend just said, hey, I have some mushrooms. You want to try some? And I think I took probably a very low dose, like 
one gram or one and a quarter, maybe one and a half. We didn't really weigh it out. But yeah, it was like you said, the low dose, the walls are breathing and whoa, this feels so good, feeling so much lightness and happiness and warmth and love and connectedness. And, you know, I had a few journeys after that, but it wasn't until I started you know, putting eye shades on and really going inward in a controlled setting where I could really, really let go. And um, yeah, those experiences, especially in Amsterdam, you know, um, really blew my mind open. And in Amsterdam, it's a magic truffle. So, um, you know, my, my first dose was like, I think, 30 grams of magic truffles when I tried the truffles, which is equivalent to maybe, you know, three and a half, four grams maybe of, um, of dried mushrooms. But I've gone up to like 80 grams of uh, magic truffles raw uh, with some, um, uh, what's it called? Oh, Syrian roux. Right, right. Yeah, Syrian roux. So Siloaska. And yeah, it, when we add Syrian root to the mushroom experience or the truffle experience, it really makes them much more intense, much more alien-like, like buggy. You know, the visuals become much more um, intense in a sort of alien-type way. And yeah, so those are some of my experiences. You know, I might have, I've now I've been through actually not that many, maybe like seventy-five or eighty, maybe. Um, relatively strong doses of mushrooms or truffles and i'm still learning every day every time i take it it's still a pure surrender and learning how much i have to go and how deep the patterns are and yeah i still you know i still highly respect the power of the medicine and maybe i can go into one anecdote that will show you that to never get arrogant with the mushrooms is um, in February this last year, I was in Walnut Creek, California, which is a quite conservative part of Northern California. And I took about eight grams of mushrooms and I was peeking and I was outside. I, the mushroom just took me outside. I needed to breathe fresh air and I was screaming all kinds of things about Native Americans and black people and uh, how I, I was saying the F word about certain, you know, about money and investors. And all of a sudden, I see two, uh, two eyes peeking over the fence. And this is in a very quiet neighborhood. Like, they don't have disturbances like this, basically. And, um, yeah, the police showed up, actually. Someone called the police on me. Oh, and, no. <laughs> yes. And we had quite a bit of mushrooms on us. So I was quite scared. I was... I was my stomach dropped basically. I had never experienced fear like that. And uh, the police officer, he went into uh, the room and searched. Uh, he, he, yeah, they they carted me off to the to the ER actually. For the first time, they put me in an ambulance and said, oh, wow. uh, you know, just for for your own safety, so that you don't overdose. And I was this was about two and a half hours in on a eight gram journey, so pretty strong. You know, I was before that. I was in my own little world. You know, yeah, I didn't know okay. where I was, and uh, yeah, I went to the hospital. And in my delusion, 
you know, in my paranoia, I thought they were going to assassinate me. I, I was really coming to the end terms with the end of my life. I was like, wow, this is how the end of a psychedelic revolutionary life ends, you know? And um, so, yeah, it was a quite a mind blowing experience. And afterwards, of course, my partner came and picked me up and she had a journey that morning that I trip set for, which was actually quite um, powerful and actually painful because she tried to hurt herself. And so I was already in a traumatized state and uh, we were actually, we rented the place to do a retreat for someone. So when we came home from the hospital, the landlord, uh, he wanted us out of the house basically. So the next day we had to find a new place. And it was a very, very humbling experience because at that time I had already done many high dose journeys and I had, you know, trips that for several hundred people. So to have that experience happen, you know, was a very, very humbling experience. And it really reminded me of the importance of uh, set and setting for sure. Wow. That is a harrowing experience for sure, man. That's crazy. Uh, and I think that, that that's really good that you're willing to share that. Um, especially at your level of uh, of experience with this, um, I am not nearly as experienced with uh, with uh, psilocybin as you are. I've probably I don't know over the 10, 15 years I've probably taken mushrooms sixty uh, ish times, just a rough estimation in varying doses. I've never gone to the super macro doses. I've probably gone as high as five grams. That's about the upper uh, limit that I've done. Um, but it's really interesting that you, yeah, that, that sucks, man. That's a lesson I hope to never have to learn, but, uh, it's, I think it's great that you're, you're speaking about that and telling people how you feel about that. And, uh, that is, that is scary, man. I, <laughs> I just, did they give you some kind of a trip killer? Did they give you out of van or something in the hospital? Um, no, they didn't actually. I mean, they put an IV in me. Um, but, but um, no, I was still pretty delusional in the hospital. I thought they were going to. I thought I was saying my last goodbye. When I realized that they weren't going to kill me, I saw my trip. My journey was a continuing. You know, I thought it was going to get in the news that this guy was journeying. <laughs> You know, I thought it was going to be big news, but yeah, you know, was... I'm losing you, man. Uh, our internet connection experience, and I think it was mushroom. Oh, are you? Okay. Yeah, let me, I didn't, I didn't let me... hear anything you said here recently. Okay. So Sorry, can you hear uh, me now, listeners. Technical difficulties here. We're going to get it worked out. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Your video is still choppy. That's okay. It's this is a okay. very the show is pretty informal, so things like this happen quite often. We can edit. It's all good, man. Okay, cool. Yeah. it's. Uh, I wonder if you can hear any of the sound in the background. I could hear, um, hear the drum beating slightly, but oh, once, okay. a, once again, I don't think it will be off-putting to our audience because, okay. like I said, we, we incorporate little musical beats and stuff. And you okay. know what? It's authentic to the setting. So he's in the middle of the Costa Rican jungle right now, and there's some drum beating in the background. So if if, you, if that bothers you, then <laughs> sorry about it. <laughs> right. Um, right. Okay, let's continue with that. So you were in the yeah. hospital. You're having this delusional episode where you think that you're going to be yeah. murdered. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And then after I realized that they were going to leave me alone, I was sort of in shock because I had never ridden in a hospital. It was a, I'd never ridden in an ambulance. So the whole thing was quite traumatic. You know, I just felt like I was being processed by this machine. And it very much, when I was in the hospital, I'm like, wow, they are very machine-like here. You know, they're all in a rush running around. They don't really want to spend time with patients. Like no one came and saw me. I'm just like, I need to speak with someone. I'm having, I'm having a little bit of an, I'm having a little bit of a wild time here. I just need to someone to assure me, you know. But of course, they're not trip sitters, so they, yeah, you know, they said uh, a couple of people said, no, no, I'll go get someone, or you know, you're not my patient, or something like that. But um, I work in, uh, I work in emergency medicine, so I'm one of those people. <laughs> wow, interesting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's a very high adrenaline, like super stressful environment. I don't know how people do it. I mean, a lot of people get burnt out, I'm sure. You have to you have to compartmentalize, man. And, you know, a lot of those people, if they weren't in in that situation right there, they wouldn't have treated you like that. You know, they probably would have been much more compassionate and caring. But the thing is, when someone comes in on a hallucinogenic drug, we know they're not going to die. Right. We know right, they're going right. to, we know that they, regardless of their psychological state, we know that they're not physically going to die. We right. have patient, we have patients in other rooms who may physically die. So we have to leave, we have to unfortunately leave you to your own devices so we can right. go save someone's life. <laughs> right. Right. And I, and I totally understand that. And, um, yeah. And I was actually, I asked the nurse about, do, do you know anything about psilocybin? And she's like, no, no. She, it's like, it, it made me realize how how much of a bubble I lived in and how most people have never taken it or even thought about it or even heard it. They might've heard about it once or twice, but it's not something in their consciousness. So it showed me how much more work we have left to do as a society to get this into, you know, mainstream medicine, basically. Yeah. I have a funny anecdote about that, that I can tell. Uh, this was, uh, not too long ago. I don't want to spe specify anything. Uh, because of what I do for my career. But uh, there was a young patient who came in who was having a difficult experience on some kind of semi-psychedelic or psychedelic drug. Um, I believe the patient was using like some sort of synthetic cannabis or something like that. So he was having a, uh, a psychotic, a mild psychotic episode. And luckily, since I was there, I kind of could understand what he was going through. So I'm telling him, he's like, look, man, I feel like I'm slipping away. Like, I feel like I'm dying. Like I, like I'm leaving right now. And I'm telling him like, while everybody else is out of the room, I'm like, Hey, look, dude, I know what you're going through. It's going to be okay. You need to relax. Try your best to let go. Don't struggle. And, uh, he's like, uh, but man, I think I'm dying. I think I'm dying. I'm like, I promise you, you're not dying. Like we're gonna, you know, we're gonna make sure that all your vitals are good. Like physically you're, you're well off. You're a young man. You're not going to die. But he's having this like ego death type experience coupled by the fact that he's now in this very alien situation. He's probably maybe never been to the emergency room before. He's really, really scared. So some time goes by and uh, his his like anxiety seems to be building and he sits up on the edge of his of his stretcher and he like projectile vomits blah, everywhere. Just like, like this hard, like, like ayahuasca purge, like vomit. And uh, 
I come in there and I'm like, oh my God, dude, like you just hose down the whole room. And he's just sitting there looking at me. He goes, man, I feel so much better now. I think I'm going to be okay. I was like, okay, man, good for you. I think you're going to be okay too, but we need to get a mop now. <laughs> so anyways, it was like he had that, uh, that ayahuasca-esque experience uh, in the setting of an American emergency room. And it probably, you know, wasn't maybe as profound for him because he wasn't contextualizing like it like that. But uh, to me, it had all the signs. Like he has ego death. He's afraid. He vomits. He feels much better. And he, it, then the the symptoms or the uh, his his hallucinations subside. So uh, it was kind of interesting to see that. And luckily, I was there to kind of be like, "Hey, dude, I promise you, you're not gonna die. Like you're gonna be okay." You know, the other nurses that I work with would probably have been like, eh, he, he got what he gets what he deserves. Like, let him, if he's scared, he needs to go through this. He shouldn't be doing drugs, you know, like that type of, that type of idea. <clears throat> but anyway, that's just to kind of uh, piggyback on that, man. That's crazy. That's never happened to me. I've never had anything like that occur with me. So I'm thankful for that. Uh, you are involved in several different alliances, foundations, practitioner groups of uh, the psilocybin mushroom. What is the Global Alliance of Psilocybin Practitioners? I mean, I guess you can just kind of take it at the title, but yeah. Well, it's a it's a pretty you know it's basically us just putting words onto something that we were already doing, which is building community among people working with the medicine talking through difficult cases or, you know, talking through how to um, prepare clients and integrate, how to make sure people are safe, you know, comparing styles, comparing methods, learning from each other. And, you know, it, my, my job is to let people stay as close to home as possible now. So basically, I tried to have as many people that I know trustworthy that are uh, competent medicine practitioners all around the world, especially the U.S. And I, I do my best to connect people seeking the medicine with, you know, the people offering the space and the medicine. So it's a pretty, you know, underground uh, activity. But I think it's, I, you know, we've seen many people get together and be able to work with the medicine together. So yeah, it's basically part of the mission of connecting people with the medicine, regardless of where they are. Sure. Um, truffles therapy. That is the, are you, are you still able to hear me or no? Okay. Uh, truffles therapy. That is the place or the, uh, retreat for facilitation that you set up in Amsterdam. Right. Exactly. Is that yeah. still functional without you, or do you have to be there? Um, well, we sort of carry it you know, where it's basically my partner and I are truffles therapy. So, so it people follows still you where you go. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's it's you know we represent truffles therapy, and people still contact us through that site, and you know people are seeking out the medicine. So again, we do our best to connect people with the medicine and. Uh, the guides in the areas, or even just resources, community, you know, psychedelic societies, events that they can go to, online meetups, integration groups. So although we have many different names, we basically do 
one main thing, which is connect people with what they're seeking for and provide that space and presence that people feel comfortable around where they can feel like they can share and themselves uh, fully without being judged by anybody. Sure, sure. That's very important for this kind of work. Um, what kind are so? What kind of doses are you utilizing? Are you deciding dose for uh, the people who are coming to work with you that you're offering safe space for or facilitating for, or are they deciding their own dose, or are you kind of helping them mitigate that themselves, or do you have like a standard protocol? It's very intuitive. We listen to what the the person, the journeyer is going through and you know, we asked how much do you want to take, basically, you know, because a lot of people have done their own research and we play with the number they give us and maybe we encourage them to go, you know, a little bit more or a little bit less the first time. And but it's really up to the person what they're ready for. And of course, we don't give them, you know, 10 grams their first time or something. But if they want to take three, four, five grams and they feel like they're prepared and they've traveled and that you know, they're dedicated to the work. Yeah, we'll give them enough to make a very big difference in their life, basically. And there's no real set dosage. Everyone's so different. Body weight, uh, the mindset, you know, how much they fasted, what kind of food they've eaten, how much they've traveled, how tired they are. Um, it all makes a big difference in you know, how, how much they decide to take, I think. Sure. Um, do you, do you see a lot of people undergoing very difficult experiences? Um, or do you, what does it look, what does a normal ceremony kind of look like for you? Like just kind of describe briefly what, what it is. Um, also I'm, I'm curious as to the, I'm curious as to the the kind of ceremonial or aspect or or the actual facilitation method used because I'm not particularly familiar with any traditional mushroom ceremonial use. I know that there are certain groups in Mexico that utilize it, but I'm not particularly familiar with those methods. Can you kind of just walk me through what it would look like for you guys? Yeah, for us, is that you or me? Is that my is, is something pinging on my thing? Oh yeah, maybe it is. Okay, sorry about that. I'm gonna... Okay, so yes, yeah, ceremonies, you know, now we like to do at least four nights or five nights. Um, but the day of the ceremony, it's usually a microdose um, in the morning to help just alleviate some anxiety. And if it's our first ceremony, especially breaking that first barrier, putting something foreign into the mouth, and realizing that it's okay that seems to help a lot and then you know we might have a light breakfast and then we do some nature time maybe a nature walk and then yin yoga which relaxes the body it's more like restorative yoga very long poses relaxing poses um some very light stretching opening of the heart area the hips and then we might do some meditation and then we set up the little ceremony, which is just, we sit around in a circle, we talk about how we're feeling, our intentions, and then the person takes the mushrooms 
you know, they ask any questions they might have. And then, you know, after they take the mushrooms, it might be in chocolate form, which is very palatable, um, or some, you know, ground up mushrooms and sometimes raw mushrooms as well. And then they usually go, if it's a private ceremony, they usually go onto a bed or a little mattress that we've laid down in the living room or something. And they just lay there, put their eye shades on. We put music on, which includes Native American chanting, Buddhist chanting, you know, Sikh chanting, some really, really high vibrational uh, pieces that resonate with love and joy and peace. And yeah, in a group ceremony, of course, we lay down mats and we've done groups up to 23 participants with, you know, 14 or 15 staff. So pretty large groups. We just set down mats around the room and they all have their little, you know, small little um, area to, to lay down on. But by the end, it's like a slumber party. You know, there's blankets and pillows all around and, you know, people up and dancing, people outside walking. So. So that's what a ceremony looks like. And to your point about people having challenging experiences, that, yeah, we've definitely seen a couple of people have some pretty difficult, um, people break down psychologically. It's like their whole way of seeing the world just disintegrates and that can be scary, you know, both in the disintegration and then it can be confusing when it starts all coming back. So yeah, we've witnessed quite a few, um, challenging experiences people kicking stuff throwing stuff you know wanting to get violent you can feel the rage just bubbling up uh someone tried to run away in the netherlands and the police had to bring them back of course in the netherlands it's really cool because you know the police are really cool there and truffles are sold openly so they were sort of laughing they said oh yeah he said he was tripping um and yeah everything was good there but yeah, we've had people try to, you know, want to run away. It's scary to see ourselves sometimes for the first time in, you know, in our whole lives. So sure, I've definitely had that experience myself where I want to run away, and I've uh, attempted to run away, like whether it be psychologically or physically to escape this. But um, you know, I always get this like, I always get this like voice or this whatever it is that intelligence that's speaking to you. So sometimes it feels very extrinsic. Sometimes you can feel it coming from within, but it's always telling me like, you can't run from this. Like you can, it, you meet, you have to go through this. Like, don't run, just, just be here. It's okay. And I'm usually able to like struggle with that for a certain, to a certain extent, and then come to like the understanding that, Hey, there's nowhere to run. Like this is, this is happening. This is taking place in your mind. Where are you going to run? Where are you going to run away from? Like, you're going to run away from yourself to yourself. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I've definitely had that 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 uh, urge, that impulse to escape this moment. And I had it particularly on an, a strong ayahuasca session I had last year. And it was so overwhelmingly intense that all I could do to comfort myself was to think of the mundane and monotonous moments of my life, like the very normal, simple monotonous moments and because that was so like it because everything that was happening to me was so alien and so like uh just unbelievably bizarre that mm -hmm. uh the only thing that would comfort me was to replay these mo mundane moments of my life and grandmother ayahuasca is telling me she's like why are you trying to escape this moment like don't 
don't try to escape. Like, don't run. Like, stop trying to comfort yourself. Stop trying to put that psychological pacifier in your mouth because you need this right now, you know? And so finally, I'm like, after we go through this, like, multiple times, you know, ayahuasca seems to have to teach me, like, the lesson in multiple angles and multiple times. It'll kind of show me something, and then I'll, like, forget, and we'll get back to that point again. Then I'll have to show me again, and then I'll forget. And then it's kind of like, I mean, I guess it's kind of like that acid time loop, you know, you can get into on LSD sometimes, like things seem to be repeating themselves over and over. But uh, mm-hmm. I've definitely undergone that the experience of trying to escape the moment during, you know, the psychedelic experience. Mm. Um, so you, you made it out of Amsterdam just in time to get ahead of COVID. So you've been there in Costa Rica right now through the entirety of the COVID pandemic? um, Well, we left Amsterdam in, I think, late October 2019. And then we went to Hawaii, Hawaii for a month, LA for a couple months, uh, and then um, Oakland, San Francisco for a month. And then I returned to Phoenix for a couple days, went back to Silicon Valley to uh, do a session up there. Came back to Phoenix for a couple of days, went to Denver to visit some people in the movement. And then that was when, you know, we were in Colorado when the NBA season got canceled. And and at that was a turning point in my mind. I was like, wow, this is not a joke. And we got to get out of here as soon as possible. Yeah. So, um, yeah, went back to Phoenix a couple of days and then flew out to to Costa Rica on the 15th, I think, of March, the day before they closed the borders. So, yeah, since it really hit the U.S., we've been here, basically. Wow. Good timing, man. Good timing. Something probably spoke to you, man. That's that's crazy. Uh, is that an ayahuasca retreat that you're staying at or? Um, they they don't they um, they do some song circles, but um, no, not. Not really here. There's, but there's a lot of ayahuasca around this area. There's a lot of ayahuasca in Costa Rica, but nobody, not very many people do it above ground. Actually, it's still a very underground thing. Oh, really? You know. Okay. But yeah, I've had, I've had my first couple of ayahuasca experiences here, and we're having a couple more uh, this weekend. And yeah, I love the plants and you know the energy that's put into these plants in this area all from local growers is unbelievable and yeah looking forward to it again this uh you know in this weekend for sure oh wow okay yeah uh man ayahuasca that's something uh so how how can you compare contrast your ayahuasca experiences with, with some of your psilocybin experiences how do you think they how do you think they stack up and what do you, what do you find different or what do you find more appealing? Yeah. What does it meant? Well, you know, the ayahuasca I've done in groups, uh, so group ceremonies, whereas the mushrooms, I basically only ever done it with myself or with one other person. Uh, and usually, you know, that person is either trip sitting or having a, a lower dose. So, um, you know, the ceremony, I still feel like I can't completely let go in the ayahuasca ceremony because it's the style of the ceremony is everybody's pretty quiet and then the shaman is singing and, you know, people start singing along. So it isn't really a time to, like, cry really loud, 
Whereas on the mushroom journeys, there's always a period where, or several periods where I'm crying quite loudly and shouting stuff. So, you know, the ayahuasca ceremony, it's time to be more quiet. Um, but yeah, I, the ayahuasca, it, it's a beautiful plant. It's a very soft, gentle kind of feeling is how I feel, you know. Whereas the mushrooms, you know, I've had a couple of journeys where the mushroom just, and, and or the Syrian root just takes over and, you know, it feels like it's just moving my body here and there. So, um, but relatively speaking, I think they're pretty similar in terms of effects, right? We're, we're seeing into our own hearts, we're seeing our own patterns, we're seeing all the things we've done wrong in the past and all the people we love and all the people we've hurt. So the effects are quite similar. I think just the way it reaches those effects um, there's a very slight difference in flavor, but overall, I think that the results are the same, pretty much. Sure. Um, I would say, I don't know, I found ayahuasca to be considerably more aggressive than psilocybin. Now, this could be because the times at which I've only, I've actually only drank ayahuasca twice, but both times it was very, very intense. And I plan to go back, uh, I, I plan to continue my work with ayahuasca particularly. But it may be the simple fact that when I utilize psilocybin, I know, I know my reaction with it more closely. I know my dose more closely. I'm, I can more closely estimate a correct dose. Whereas with ayahuasca, you know, there's just this little shaman in the jungle who's looking at you and he's like, okay, you need this much. And then he pours this brown viscous liquid into a cup and how much is this much? Like, who knows, you know? Um, I mean, maybe he knows, but uh, I sure don't. And so maybe it was just that the dose was considerably higher than um, doses I've taken before, but I found it to be very like, um, it also could be that that's just the way that I needed to be treated. You know, it was a very aggressive, right. like coming at me and like almost this berating feeling for a long time. And this like feeling of being dominated. Um, mm. but then as the, as this, as the ceremony went on and I got to the end and it started to speak to me about what that all actually meant, you know, what the way that I perceived it initially, this aggression, this violence, this domination, it kind of explained that to me. It's like, no, we weren't trying to dominate you. We weren't trying to scare you. What we we're trying to do is allow you to see that this power resides within you and you need at you, you have access to it, but we can't tell you that you as a person, you personally, we can't just tell you that you have to be shown. You have to be like made to look at it, you know? And uh, so mm -hmm. after it was explained to me, and it was very profound and beautiful. But while it was happening in this, like, I could feel this, like, aggression just, like, coming at me, it was very, very unnerving. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that's the part where I'm asking, like, please, when is this going to be over? Like, please let this end. And she's like, nope, it ends when we're done. You, you bought the ticket. You take the ride. There's no escape now. <laughs> right. So uh, Yeah, and I think that points to the fact that Everything affects everything in a ceremony. So, you know, who's giving out the medicine, how it was prepared, where it was prepared. You know, some some practitioners are more masculine and some are more feminine. And some might feel more aggressive, whereas some might feel softer and more gentle as well. So 
I think that it's not just the medicine, it's everything around the medicine and, you know, uh, what's in the medicine as well with ayahuasca, because it can vary so differently and what kind of water is used. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a host of different factors that can come into play there. Um, but I, I mean, I am, uh, I'm definitely interested and excited to continue working with that medicine, particularly um, in South America. I'm, I'm gonna once this is all over and I feel safe to move around the globe again, I'm gonna get get back out there. Mm-hmm. Um, what? So, what? What do you think the future is gonna look like? Uh, psilocybin really, like we kind of touched on it earlier, but psilocybin really seems to be leading the way, uh, particularly here in Western, even in Western medicine. Um, we're seeing these studies through Johns Hopkins really um, bring, bringing this medicine to the forefront. We're also seeing breakthroughs for MDMA and things like those, which have generally been clandestinely used medicines that, or, you know, I don't even think most people thought of them as medicines until here recently. Um, but what do you think the future looks like in that regard? And what do you hope to see in the future in that regard? Mm. Well, hoping is definitely a different thing than reality. I think I hope that tomorrow or today, everything will be legalized and everybody will be able to grow and eat whenever they want, however they want. Realistically, I think it's going to be the next few years, there's going to be waves of different cities and uh, counties and states working to decriminalize. Um, You know, the one that is going most strongly now is the the initiative in Oregon that wants to legalize psilocybin therapy, along with the uh, Drug Alliance, Drug Policy Alliance, Drug Alliance, Drug Policy Alliance, who is running the whole um, decriminalize all drugs uh, initiative in Oregon as well. So I think, you know, and who knows, though, it's everything slowed down because of the pandemic. And, you know, the the USONA uh, clinical trials are slowed down and stopped because of the, the COVID issue. So, you know, and also, I, over just the last three or four weeks, I've gotten so many more inquiries and also people offering, you know, business opportunities and things like that. So I think it's definitely speeding up in Canada. There's like 50 online dispensaries selling mushrooms already. So it's de facto decriminalized there. And there's so many investors and companies going public out of uh, Canada. So I think Canada is going to be leading and you know, the U.S., once U.S. investors realize that they're missing out, they're going to be starting to put pressure on local, state, and federal governments to, you know, uh, hopefully change the laws. And also, you know, I I don't know if it's really in the federal government's best interest to, you know, expand access to this, knowing what this stuff does to people's political views. So, it's still anyone's guess, right? Yeah. We're, we're dealing with a huge mental health epidemic that the government is obviously going to have to, at whatever level, deal with because we can't have a bunch of depressed people not being able to work. You know, if we can sell it to the government as this is economically beneficial for the society, then they'll be like, okay, that's us do psilocybin. But, yeah. you, know, um, you know, Canada right now, 
um, they in in early March, I think they rejected uh, Dr. Bruce Tobin's uh, three-year uh, request to well, he, he had requested it three years ago, but they just denied the request, uh, allowing um, basically end-of-life uh, patients to use psilocybin if they wish. So now, Mr. Bruce, Dr. Bruce Tobin and his organization, Theracil, they're helping end-of-life patients directly petition to the government saying, please let me use psilocybin before I die. So that's a big movement, and that really show that will show where the government is. Like, do you want to help uh, end-of-life patients, right? Give them what they want, or do you want to keep pretending and uh, while in the background, just working with big pharma to continue numbing and extracting money from people? So, you know, I think we're already seeing what it's like to go heads up with the government and. You know, governments move slow, especially the U.S. government. So I think three to five years is a good timeline for the expansion of the decriminalization efforts. Well, that was a very big question and a very open-ended question I just asked, and I think you hit all the major points really, really well. And I think you're you're very right in, in some of the things you said is that uh, the federal government does not want us to have access to things that are going to expand our consciousness and basically get us to disconnect with their regime and their thought process that they've been pushing on us for time immemorial. Um, and that also, oddly enough, the, the one thing that the psychedelic experience has done for me, and I would assume tends to do for most people, is to slowly negate the importance of money and material possessions and it's ironic that that i think you're correct in saying that the only thing that would incentivize the united states to further delve into these waters is monetary gain and uh, monetary gain from a from a medicine that literally erases the need for monetary gain and maybe not everybody but in myself for sure um not completely you know we all have to make money to survive and, and do the things that we want to do and accomplish what we want to accomplish in this world but it takes the it de-emphasizes it more and more you know and uh sure. I, I, it's just that's that's uh, strange and ironic but that's the way the world works um mm -hmm. Well, my brother Chi, we've been doing this for almost an hour. Do you want to tell us, uh, tell my listeners and myself where we can look into your other works, where we can find you, where we can have access to maybe your facilitation? Or what, what do they need to know about you and where can they find you at? <clears throat> yeah, probably the best way is uh, truffletherapy.com, T-R-U-F-F-L-E-S, therapy, T-H-E-R-A-P-Y.com, truffletherapy.com. My direct email is chi at truffles therapy, so chi at truffles therapy.com. Um, on LinkedIn, I'm chi psilocybin, so chi space psilocybin. And on Facebook, I'm chi Amsterdam, so chi space Amsterdam, like the city. So, yeah, feel free to reach out. I'm really happy to have been able to share. And thank you, Clinton, for having me on. And I hope that everyone has you know, access to the medicine and, 
And I pray that everyone can have safe and healing journeys and that we can all wake up together and start speaking the truth and standing up for the truth, regardless of, uh, you know, the potential consequences. Absolutely. I agree with you, brother. Um, are you offering any sort of like online coaching right now, integration sessions, things like that? Can people, yeah. can people reach out to you for that? Yeah, definitely. And definitely reach out. And if it's not us, we can always, you know, we have a pretty wide network of people around the world that work with the medicine. So yeah, feel free to reach out. And that first step is just reaching out, pressing that button, writing a few words on email, clicking send, and you never know what kind of doors can open. So many people think for months or years even before they click that send button. But, you know, we're always to, you know, I've seen so many cases of people being like, wow, I didn't know this was possible. So all it takes is reaching out. I like to say magic happens when you reach out. That's a good place to end it right there. Thank you, my brother Chief, for coming on Psychedelicast. We appreciate it. And we'll catch you next time. And there you have it, Psychedelicast listeners. A fantastic interview with my brother Chi Amsterdam of Truffles Therapy. Um, honestly, I have to say, I get to talk to a lot of really cool people. Some people I'm already familiar with and a fan of, and obviously I've interviewed several of my heroes in this arena. Um, Chi stands out as me as one of my favorite guests. Uh, the dude just kind of gives off this aura of genuine compassion and joyfulness. And, uh, I know you can't Obviously, I'm not uploading a video version of this, but if you were to watch the video chat that we had, you would see all that. And I think you can hear that in his voice, and I think you can understand that from his words. So thank you to my brother, Chi. I really enjoyed talking with you, and I would love to have you back on the show uh, at some point in the future. Um, that's about all we have to say about it. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I really enjoyed recording it. Let's do a quote, and we'll leave you for this week. We'll leave you with a word from a show regular, the great and powerful Terrence McKenna, the bard of the psilocybin mushroom. Since we've been discussing all this healing and working with psilocybin, I think it only uh, proper to end this with a quote from Terrence himself um, discussing the great love of his life, the psilocybin mushroom. When we look within ourselves with psilocybin, we discover that we do not have to look outward toward the futile promise of life that circles distant stars in order to still our cosmic loneliness. We should look within. The paths of the heart lead to nearby universes full of life and affection for humanity. Thank you once again for joining us, Psychedelicasters. I really enjoyed putting this episode together for you. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, as always, we appreciate you spending your time with us, and we really appreciate you participating with us in the constant attempt to pry open the third eye. We'll see you next time, and we love you.